Please do take your seats. Let me pray. As we begin, let's pray. Our Father, may you speak to us this evening by your Spirit, through your Word. We confess that we need to hear you. We confess that we are in need of your grace. And so may you incline our hearts to your word this evening, not to anything this world has to offer us. Open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word this evening. Unite our hearts in reverent fear of you and satisfy our hearts in your steadfast love. We ask and we pray for the glory of the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. If you were to write down a top, let's say top 50 list of people who God has used in remarkable ways in the Bible, I wonder who would be in your list. Who would make that cut, that top 50? The apostles, maybe. There's a good chunk sorted. Moses, John the Baptist, King David. Well, in the book of Ezra, in these opening verses, I think you find somebody who can make a good claim to be in the top 50. This evening, we're just looking at the, the first four verses of the book, and in uh, the following two weeks, we'll look at the rest of the chapter and chapters two and three. But to understand what's going on here at the beginning of this letter and of Ezra, ne- sorry, Ezra Nehemiah as a whole, we must go further back. But rather than me explaining what's happened, just turn back a page to the end of two chronicles. Have a look at chapter 36. And let me read from verse 15, which sets the scene for us. And as you turn there, you may notice the repeating phrase, and the king did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord his God. And the king did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord his God. And as went the king... So went the people. Let me read from verse 15 of chapter 36, and I'll read straight on into the beginning of Ezra. The Lord, the God of their ancestors, sent word to them through his messengers again and again, because he had pity on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked God's messengers, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people, and there was no remedy. He brought up against them the king of the Babylonians, who killed their young men with the sword in the sanctuary, and did not spare young men or young women, the elderly or the infirm. God gave them all into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. He carried to Babylon all the articles from the temple of God, both large and small, and the treasures of the Lord's temple, and the treasures of the king and his officials. They set fire to God's temple and broke down the wall of Jerusalem. They burned all the palaces and destroyed everything of value there. He carried into exile to Babylon the remnant who escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and his successors until the kingdom of Persia came to power. 
The land enjoyed its Sabbath rests. All the time of its desolation, it rested until the 70 years were completed in fulfillment of the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he's appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up, and may the Lord, their God, be with them. And now our passage this evening. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. And in any locality where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with free will offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. We've got three points for our passage this evening, which will come up on the screen behind us. By the word of God, the pagan proclaims. By the word of God, the pagan prepares. And by the word of God, the pagan provides. We see at the beginning, don't we, Cyrus has recently become king. The Persian Empire has defeated the Babylonian Empire. So why does he send the Jewish people home? Why is this something so important for him to do in the first year of his reign? Why not keep them in Babylon? See, the practice was when the Babylonians conquered, as you read in two, uh, 2 Chronicles, they brought the best of Babylon. They tried to assimilate them, make them Babylonians. The Persians, however, did nearly the opposite. Cyrus' policy was to send them home to where they came from. His thinking was, as the people went home, they would worship their gods in their homeland. Their gods would pray to the Persian gods, who would then hopefully make Cyrus reign for longer. We know historically this is why Cyrus sent them home. This was his policy. This is what people would see happening. But if we looked at what was happening through a different lens through a lens which brought clarity, what really is happening as the people are sent home? Well, we see, don't we, in verse one of the book. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord, spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia. So the question is, why did Cyrus send his people home? Well, what's the answer? In order to fulfill the word of the Lord. It was the Lord's desire to see his word fulfilled. That was the primary reason Cyrus acted as he did. What words is this? What words are spoken by Jeremiah? 
Let me read it for you. We've got Jeremiah 25, verse 11, which reads, This whole country will become a desolate wasteland, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. But when the 70 years are fulfilled, I will punish the king of Babylon and his nation. The land of the Babylonians for their guilt, declares the Lord, and will make it desolate forever. I will bring on that land all the things I have spoken against it, all that are written in this book and prophesied by Jeremiah against all the nations. They themselves will be enslaved by many nations and great kings. I will repay them according to their deeds and the work of their hands. And then in chapter 29, verse 10, this is what the Lord says, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. We see here and in that passage in Second Chronicles, God scatters his people in judgment. God is a God of justice. He will not let the guilty go unpunished. And yet in these passages in Jeremiah, in this pronouncement of justice, we see hope. We see a promise to save, to gather back. We see a God who is compassionate and faithful. We see a God who continues to be the God of the Jewish people, even when they don't want to be his people. How remarkable is our God. What steadfast covenant love. Have a look again at verse 1, where I think we see something striking. When I, when I did the Cornhill training course in Glasgow, one of our lecturers, Andy Gemmel, would stand there and go, question, why is this here? I think we see that in this verse. Verse 1 doesn't say, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia. No, it says the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah. See, God was so committed to the prophet Jeremiah that whatever Jeremiah said would happen, happened. God has not only spoken to the world, but he has spoken to the world through his prophet Jeremiah. And he says to him, what you say, Jeremiah, I will do, because God is committed to fulfilling his word. And if you read the history of the build-up to this passage, if you read Isaiah, Jeremiah, we see the foretelling that Babylon came to power by the will of God. They defeated Jerusalem by the will of God. They will, defeat, they will be defeated by the Persians by the will of God. And God's people will be brought home by the will of God. This will isn't something up in the air, something ethereal, but rather this will of God is word spoken. Words that will be fulfilled. What we think of as the careful planning of leaders in history. What Cyrus thought of as probably a wonderful plan for him is in fact the act is in fact actually the sovereign will of God. What we may think of as accidents in the history of the world is actually the sovereign will of God. When I was looking at this passage and chatting it through with uh, John Ferguson during the week, he said a phrase which, which struck me. The unexpected way is often the way of God. 
And that's what we see here in this passage with King Cyrus. And that is what we continue to see in the New Testament, most clearly with the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. Think of being one of his disciples at that time. This whole proclamation of the kingdom of God thing is a catastrophic failure. The so-called Messiah has just been crucified. Then look at that event through a different lens, a lens which brings clarity. And we have Peter's speech in Acts chapter 2. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Even in one of the greatest events in history, where man thought he had killed God, it was in fact the sovereign will of God. When we go through things, don't we? Things, things good, things bad. I was reminded of a Tim Keller quote this week where he talks about how Christians are either one of two things. They're either suffering or they are preparing to suffer. We go through things, we make plans, plans completed, plans failed. And in all of it is the hidden hand of God. And often things don't turn out the way we wanted them to turn out. Because the unexpected way is often the way of God. And here at the beginning of this book, 200 years after it was foretold in Isaiah, 70 years after promise was made, in a place God's people did not want to be, in a ruler they did not want to be under, in the most unlikely of circumstances, we see God is in control, directing history, fulfilling his promises, because he is faithful to his word. And if God can use a pagan emperor to do his work, if God can use a pagan emperor to serve him, brothers and sisters, he can use us to serve him also. What we have at the beginning of the book of Ezra is a sign that as God goes about reestablishing his people in the land, he is committed to fulfilling his word. Every last promise. And if that was true then, it is also true today. God is still faithful to his word and God still speaks to us through his word. So as we gather each Sunday, as we open God's word and hear it's read and taught and explained, God's work is still done. It means that we leave here different people to how we came in. The Lord works through his word and here we see something seemingly quite unexpected. A pagan king proclaim so that the words of the Lord may be fulfilled. And it goes on to change history. By the word of God, the pagan proclaims. But what is it he proclaims? And what is it he puts in writing? That'll be important for us later on in the book. We'll have a look again at verses two to four. And here we see that Cyrus does two main things. He prepares for the building of the temple and he provides the materials and people needed. Cyrus again just thinking he's going to He's going to do his policy, send them back home, build this temple, and he'll be the one who will profit from it. But this, this temple that they're being back home to build isn't like this church building. It's not merely bricks and mortar. There's something significant, something important here going on. 
There's a phrase I heard a preacher say once based on something John Calvin said, which says the temple was the visible sign of the Christ to come. Isn't that a wonderful phrase? The temple is the visible sign of the Christ to come. And Cyrus wants this temple built. Cyrus wants this visible sign of the Christ to come built. But he didn't know that. Well, in what way was this temple a visible sign of the Christ to come? Well, immediately you may think of the sacrifices that happen. The temple was the place of sacrifice performed by priests. Looking ahead to Jesus Christ, the great high priest, the one who gave the sacrifice of atonement of his life. But how else is the temple that Cyrus once built? How else is that a visible sign of the Christ to come? Forgive me for skipping over so many passages this evening. It's it's pregnant with things, these opening verses. But if we were to look at 1 Kings 8, we'd see the dedication of the temple by King Solomon. And in his prayer, he said in a paraphrase, the heavens can't contain you. So of course, this house won't contain you either. But you have said in this temple, your name shall be. And if we pray to this temple, you will listen. God made himself present there. And Solomon goes on and says, when you pray for help to this house, you will listen. When you sin and want forgiveness and pray to this house, you will listen. When a foreigner wants to know you and comes and prays to this house, you will listen. Today we would say, if you pray through Jesus Christ, God will listen. If you confess your sins and ask for forgiveness in Jesus Christ, God will hear you. If unbelievers come through Jesus, God will accept them. The temple was the visible sign of the Christ to come. Because Jesus Christ is the true and better temple. And the temple being rebuilt was a sign that God wasn't finished with his people yet. He still had a plan for them. He still had work for them to do. And the Christ was still to come. And it is this temple Cyrus once rebuilt. By the word of God, the pagan proclaims. By the word of God, the pagan prepares. And by the word of God, the pagan provides. Did notice in the text that Cyrus didn't command everyone to go home. Rather, he gave permission for people to go home. And those who chose not to go were to provide for their fellow survivors. Verse 4, and in any locality where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with free will offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Perhaps as we read verse 4, it might feel like deja vu. Perhaps if you're here and you've been inspired the last two years, you might especially be thinking, ha, huh, this sounds familiar to something we've looked at. See, in the story of the Exodus, we see God's people being freed from slavery, guided to the promised land. And as they are freed, like in Ezra, the ruler of the land, by the hand of God, sends them out. And as they go, they are provided with silver and gold. What we're going to see in this book isn't the birth of a nation, but rather the rebirth of a nation. This is going to be like the Exodus, but not as before. 
Don't you? But as I read these opening verses, I want to go, what is that going to be about? What is that going to look like? What an opening scene we have in these four verses. What sort of exodus is it going to be? Well, one where the people who are once scattered in judgment are now gathered together as God's people. One where God's temple is rebuilt. One where his law is reconstituted. One where there's a challenge of enemies, the threat of intermarriage with non-Jews resulting in idolatry. Similar themes to the original Exodus. God's people gathered together in God's place with the presence of God among them and God's king reigning over them. That's the hope. That's what they're wanting to see. But is that what we see in the book of Ezra? What happens? How will it come about? Through God's commitment to his word. Through God's commitment to his word being fulfilled through the actions of this pagan king. But before we close, did you notice verse 4? That no one is overlooked. Every survivor, no one is excluded from this work. No one is overlooked by this pagan king. And so it is with our king, the Lord Jesus Christ. No one overlooked. Everyone that belongs to the Lord is involved in the Lord's work. And the Lord in every place where his people are can make provision for them as he does here in the book of Ezra. And really in in this verse here, there's nothing miraculous about what happened. The silver and gold didn't grow on trees. But again, there is something miraculous though, isn't there? People gave what they have for one another and for the good of the furtherance of the kingdom of God. The people either go or they give. Everyone has a part to play. All of this coming about through the proclamation of a pagan king so that the word of the Lord may be fulfilled. Let's pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.